0: Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. I hope that all of you spent the last week meditating on Jesus Christ who carried the cross for us. Are there any of you that are listening that are fond of penguins? I personally love to watch penguins because they are so cute when they waddle. There are many types of penguins in the world. Recently, I saw a documentary about Gentoo penguins on the National Geographic channel. There was a certain scene in the documentary that most caught my eye. The scene was where the mother penguin was feeding her three-week-old twin baby penguins. First, the mother penguin held the fish inside her mouth. The mother penguin gave the fish to the first baby penguin and went out to grab another fish to feed the other baby penguin but this is when the problem arises. Because the two baby penguins are twins, the mother could not differentiate which was the one that was already fed. The mother penguin wanted to feed both the baby penguins equally. What the mother penguin did to make the distinction will surprise all of you. The mother acted in the following way to feed both her children fairly. The mother held the second fish in her mouth and started to run away from her children. The baby penguins both started to run after the mother wanting to eat the fish. Can you guess what happened next? Which baby penguin do you think will continue to run after the mother as she is holding the fish? Is it the penguin that already had its share of the fish? Or is it the baby penguin that is hungry and hasn't eaten yet? We will continue our discussion after the first song. Two penguin started to run away from her children with the food in her mouth, both the baby penguins started to run after her. Which baby penguin will chase the mother penguin to the end? I personally thought that the baby penguin that had already eaten would be able to run after its mother to the end. I thought that because it was energized from eating the fish already, it probably had more energy to run after the mother penguin to the end in order to get another fish. But it turns out that the penguin's behavior in the documentary was completely different from what I thought. The baby penguin that had already had its share of the food did run after the mother in the beginning as expected, but it was hard for the baby penguins to keep up with the mother penguin that was much faster than them. After a while of running around, the baby penguin that already ate began to slow down, came to a stop, and started looking around no longer paying attention to its mother. But the baby penguin that had not eaten yet continued to follow the mother penguin until the mother placed the fish into its mouth. Isn't that amazing? As I watched the behavior of the baby penguins that differed from my expectation, I thought about the principle a faith ingrained in nature. What made the baby penguin that had not eaten run after the mother to the end? And what made the baby penguin that had already eaten stop chasing its mother and quit midway? What do you all believe is the reason for this behavior? I believe the reason for this behavior is due to desire and passion. If we translate this into biblical point of view, We can call this poverty, starvation, or even thirst. Matthew chapter 5 verses 3 and 6 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There was thirst and hunger inside the baby penguin that had not eaten yet as compared to the baby penguin that had already eaten. The documentary explained that the baby penguin was able to chase after the mother to the end because of its desire and passion. That means that the baby penguin that had already eaten the fish did not have the same level of need or the same desire or passion in its heart. This makes me think about our lives and how much we desire and have passion to chase after our Jesus Christ. I'm so thirsty I can feel
1: it Burning through the furthest corners of my soul Deep desire I can't describe this Nameless urge that drives me somewhere Though I don't know where to go Seems I've heard about a river From someone who's been And they tell me once you reach it Oh, you'll never thirst again So I have to find the river Somehow my life depends on the river Holy river the water I've been drinking
0: Coming up next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is a Christ-directed mission, Part One, based on Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses sixteen through twenty. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
2: You've got your Bibles, and I hope you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter twenty-eight. Before we jump into our time in God's Word this morning, I want to, uh, I want to give you a picture to kind of keep in your mind as we, as we launch into this study, this series on what it means to be a part of a church that's unstoppable. I remember recently I was doing a, a camp conference type thing up in Tennessee and part of the week involved whitewater rafting down the Okoe River. Just out of curiosity, anybody ever been whitewater rafting before? Okay, some of you have been. A lot of you have been. Okay. Well, just in case you haven't, basically the way whitewater rafting works is you've got this raft, a boat type thing, and it's got room for about six people, uh, two in the front and two in the middle and two in the back. And then there's, there's another guy who sits in the very back. He's the guide, and his whole responsibility is to make sure that everybody lives through the experience. And so you like the guide. It's good to have him there. And we were getting on uh, the Okoi River that day and it was really high and so we knew the water was going to be really rough and so I decided the best place for me to be was right in the back with the guide and so that's where I immediately went, sat back there right next to him, that way if I fall off he saves my life very easily. And so Heather and I got on and four others from this conference, and we started rafting down the river. And basically, if you've been before, you know what it's like. The people in the front really have all the action. I mean, they're the people that are hitting the the rapids first thing. The water's coming up in their face. And if you're sitting in the back, you're just kind of coasting along. It's a nice ride, enjoyable, not as intense as it is in the front. We get down near the end of the river, and our guide says, Okay, guys, we are coming up on the last rapid on the Ocoee today, and this is the most dangerous, the most intense rapid And he said, I need a volunteer who would be willing to ride the bull. Okay? Now, some of you may be familiar with this terminology. I wasn't. Never heard of riding the bull before. And I thought, well, one of these these guys from the conference, they're they're stupid enough to go out and ride the bull, and I'll just kind of sit back here. And so that was what I was planning on doing. But then they all started pointing the finger at me, and they said, Dave will ride the bull. Dave would love to ride the bull. And so I'm thinking, what in the world? It was like this whole conspiracy to kill the, the conference speaker. And so... They said, all right, Dave, you're going to do it. And so the guy gets in my face and he says, all right, this is what you're going to do. He says, what we need you to do is go up to the very front of the boat. And he said, I said, okay, I can sit in one of those front seats. He said, no, 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 no. You need to sit on the very edge, the tip of the boat. You need to let your legs hang over the front of the boat. And what you're going to do is you're going to reach down and grab a ring that's down there. A very small ring, by the way. You're going to grab down to this ring and we're going to go down the rapid and you're going to be face first hanging on to this ring with all your life, hoping you don't fall off. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm thinking, not a chance, okay? (laughs) They're like, no, do it, no, do it, except for Heather. Heather's like, don't die. And so I go crawling out to the front of the boat. I get out there. I sit on the tip. I put my legs over the front, and I reach down, and I grab onto that ring as tightly as I can. We start going down into this rapid. And I'm hitting the waves just face first. They're coming up right in me. I am on the tip of the boat just experiencing all those waves have to offer. And it starts to get pretty rough. Everybody's cheering me on, so I start to get a little, little adrenaline going in me. And I start to think, you know, I've never ridden a bull before, but I've watched bull riders on TV. And I know enough to know about bull riding that when those guys ride the bull, they don't, they don't hold on with both hands, do they? Uh, You know, they they have one hand loose. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to ride the bull, I'm going to ride the bull. And so (laughs) I'm starting to get a little overconfident. And so I let go of the ring with one hand. And I start doing this action right here. And I start really riding the bull. (laughs) Well, it's about that time that the bull decides he's had enough of me. And so he throws me off of himself. I find myself more under the bull right now. And, and the, wa- the boat is literally on top of me. We're going down the rapid. The waves are just, just piling on me. They're trying to reach in and grab me. Heather's really like, don't die now. They're trying to pull me in, but they can't get me in. I go down the rest of the rapid, just underwater, under the boat, holding on for dear life. Finally, we get through the rapid, and they pull me in. They don't know if I'm alive. They don't know if I'm breathing. I've got water coming out of my nose, my eyes, my mouth. I mean, it's coming out everywhere. And they look down at me, and they're like, are you okay? Are you okay? Finally, I caught my breath. And I looked up, and I said, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And it was. It it was. It was a lot different than sitting in the back of the boat kind of coasting along. I experienced literally all that river had to offer. I want to invite you this morning as we dive into Scripture, I want to invite you to the front of the boat with me. What I mean by that is this. I, I think most of us are on the boat. There's... A majority of us in this room who've placed our faith in Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've trusted in him. And we're even active in church as a result. And it's a sign, a sign of us being here this morning. We're on the boat. And even a few weeks ago, we walked from Psalm 67 and walked from Genesis to Revelation about how we were created to make God's glory in all nations. And what I want to invite you to do is, is to come from coasting in the back to the front. And I want to invite you to the front of what I believe the church's mission is all about. And I want to invite you to taste and experience all that this river has to offer. And I want you to know it's a little more dangerous up in the front and it's a little more risky, but I want you to know from the very beginning it is worth it. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning from Matthew chapter 28, a passage that I'm guessing is familiar to many of you. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is very widely known in the church, but receives, I believe, nominal adherence today in the church. And what I want us to do is I want us to dive in and just pray that God By his spirit would give us fresh eyes as we look at Jesus' parting words to his disciples. Matthew chapter twenty eight, verse sixteen. The Bible says the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now just a side note here, whenever you see Jesus going to the mountain, you know it's something very important. Signifies an important message. Matthew chapter five through seven, sermon on the sermon on the Wow, very good, okay. Then Matthew chapter 17, right in the middle, the transfiguration happens on the mountain. We see Jesus coming to the end of his life on earth at this point, and he says, I'll take you to the mountain. Important message. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What I want us to do is divide this passage up into three different sections. I want us to see the power of Christ and the plan of Christ and then the presence of Christ. This sermon brought to you by the letter P, okay? Here we go. Let's start with, with first the power of Christ. This is the part of the Great Commission that we often browse over get to the meat, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. But what we've got to realize that everything that Jesus is saying here is hinging on the fact that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to him. Now, if Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and on earth, then what does that mean it's not under his authority? That pretty much covers it. He's got it. He says, I am Lord over everything. I have authority over heaven and earth. He had died on the cross, rose from the grave, conquered death, sin in the grave, and therefore he was Lord over everything. I think this means two things. Number one, that blank right there, he is Lord of our lives. He is Lord of all of our lives in this room. You know, I find it interesting sometimes, people come up to me and they say, Dave, I've decided to make Jesus Lord of my life. What's wrong with that statement? You really didn't have a choice in the matter. Jesus is Lord of every single one of our lives in this room. What does the Bible say? One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single one of us in this room will one day bow our knee and call Jesus Lord. The question is, will we do it now or will we do do it when it's too late? The question is not, is he Lord of our lives? He is Lord of all of our lives in this room. The question is if we submitted our lives to his lordship. Now what does that mean? Basically it means we have surrendered every right to determine the direction of our lives. We have surrendered every right to determine the direction of our lives. If he is Lord and we have placed our faith in him and trusted him to save us from our sins, that means we no longer call the shots in our lives. And I want to speak real frankly to you this morning. Men, you don't call the shots in your family anymore. You don't call the shots for what you do with your career or your ambitions. It's not about what you desire anymore. Christ is calling the shots. You have surrendered the right to determine the direction of your life. Students, as you think about about your future, where you're going to go to school, what you're going to study, what you're going to do with your life, it's not up to you. It's up to Christ. He is calling the shots. You are second in command. We have surrendered every right to determine the direction of our lives. You have surrendered the right to determine the direction of the church at Brook Hills. It is not in your hands. It is in the hands of the one who has authority over this church. He is Lord of our lives. And this is going to be huge. This is where all this thing is headed to when we come to the end today. So keep this in mind. But second, I believe it means he is not only Lord of our lives, he is Lord of the nations. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what I want you to see in Scripture this morning is how this had been prophesied way back in the Old Testament and it's fulfilled when we see the end of the New Testament Completely. And this is kind of a midpoint right here. Hold your place here in Matthew chapter 28 and turn with me back in the Old Testament to Daniel. I want you to underline a couple verses in Daniel that I think are huge for us understanding what it means for Jesus to have all authority in heaven and on earth. Daniel chapter 7, what we're about to read is, is what the Old Testament calls prophecy. This is, this is a word that foretells something in the future. This was spoken hundreds of years before Christ came on the scene. Before Matthew 28, 18, said all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. But I want you to see what Daniel had prophesied. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. look with me at verse 13 and 14. Listen to what Daniel saw in this prophetic vision. Underline this and think about how it relates to what we're talking about over here in Matthew 28. The Bible says in my vision, verse 13, at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Now, you can circle that phrase right there, son of man. This is a term that basically means someone who is human, yet has a heavenly origin. Son of man. Has human, but is also has a divine facet. That's exactly who Christ is. He is human, yet he's divine. Saw all one like a son of man. Now look, this is talking about Christ coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And listen to this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed that's talking about Christ there's one who's going to come he's going to have all authority sovereign power dominion and all people's all nations are going to worship him as lord well, that's what daniel said hundreds of years before matthew now i want you to go with me to the end of the bible revelation chapter 7 i want you to see What Daniel has talked about here coming to a a culmination, Revelation chapter 7. This is talking about a picture of where all of eternity is headed. Please, please catch this because this is huge for our understanding of Matthew chapter 28. Look at Revelation chapter 7, last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 7. Read with me starting in verse 9. This is John talking about what he sees all of eternity headed toward. He says, after this, in verse 9, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude... That no one can count. And here it is, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That sounds a lot like Daniel 7. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. All of eternity is headed to this picture when every nation and every tribe and every language will bow around the throne of the lamb who was slain and lamb who won the ultimate battle and they will sing his praises because he is Lord. He has all authority, sovereign power over all creation. Now, when you come back to Matthew chapter 28 and you begin to think about what this means for the Great Commission, I believe there's two main implications. Number one, I want you to see that this right here is why we go. This is why we are going to look at making disciples of all nations and why we need to say in our lives that this should be the integrating, overriding priority of everything we do. In just a second, we're going to dive into this mission and what it's about, but I want you to see the why from the very beginning. This is why we go. Some of you are going to be thinking this morning, well, why should I in my life here in Birmingham, why should I say in my workplace or in my home or in my community, why should I be about one thing in my life, making disciples of all nations? Why should I do this? And the only reason is because he is Lord of every single person in Birmingham and he is worthy of all of their worship. That's why we give ourselves to this mission because we're convinced in our hearts that the people that we work with and the people in our homes are people that need to know that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus has paid the price for their sins. He's died on the cross, rose from the grave, and He deserves all of their worship. That's why we go not only in Birmingham, but in other places. People have asked me, even well-meaning Christians who are close to me, asked me, Dave, why, why, why do you go to the Sudan? Don't you know that's dangerous? Don't you know it's, there's a lot of risk in going to a place like that? Why would you leave your wife for a couple weeks Risk not coming back in order to go to the Sudan. Why would you do that? Why would you even consider doing that in this room this morning? Why would you consider packing your bags, whether short-term or long-term, and moving to Africa or going on a trip to Africa? Here's why. Here's why you go to Africa. You go to Africa because there's 3,000 tribes there that are worshiping animistic religions that are completely devoid of God, and Jesus Christ is worthy of all of their worship. He is Lord of the nations. Why should you consider going to a place like Japan or Laos or Vietnam? Here's Why? Because there's 350 million Buddhists in those countries today who are following Buddha's rules and Buddha's regulations and Jesus Christ alone is worthy of their worship. Not Buddha. Why should you consider going to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka? Why would you go there? Why would that even be a consideration in your life? Because there's 950 million Hindus there that are worshiping more gods than you or I can even fathom and there is only one God who is worthy of all of their worship. His name is Jesus. Why would you go to the communist countries like China, North Korea, others. Why would you go to a place like that? Risk going into a place like that. Here's why. Because there's over a billion people in those nations that have grown up in an atheistic philosophy that says there is no God, and there is a God, and He is worthy of all of those people's worship. Why should the church at Brook Hills be concerned about going to the Middle East with the gospel? Why should Ladies and gentlemen, in this room, why should students consider the dream of their life being going into the Middle East to share the gospel? Why would we even consider that? Here's why. Because there's over a billion Muslims today who are fasting and giving alms and making holy pilgrimages to Mecca and praying five times a day to a false god. And Jesus Christ alone is worthy of all of their worship. That is why we go. Because in our hearts, we see that he is Lord. He is Lord of the nations. And we want to make his lordship known. That's why we surrender everything for this mission. Not only that, not only do I want you to see the motive for us going, but I want you to see this next truth under there. Not only is this why we go, but I want you to see that this mission is guaranteed. This mission is guaranteed. The beauty of what we have seen in Daniel and then in Matthew and then in Revelation is the fact that you give yourself to this mission. You are part of a mission that is truly unstoppable. Mark it down, every tribe, every nation is going to bow around the throne and call Jesus Lord. The question is, is the church at Brook Hill going to get in on it? The question is, are you going to get in on this mission? It's guaranteed. You know, you know the end from the beginning. You know that Christ has won. He is victorious. And this is huge for our understanding of what we're about to look at. What we need to realize this morning is that God does not need you and me specifically in this room, and he doesn't need the church at Brook Hills in order to accomplish this mission. I want you to hang with me here. Don't miss this. I remember one of these recent trips I had uh, where I was in Asia and, and going around to some different places and hiking and, and doing some difficult things that were trying me in, in different ways. And I remember having my quiet time one day in the mountains and, and started, started thinking, you know, I'm really doing something good here. It's kind of those, one of those moments where I started thinking, you know, God, God must really be happy to have me on His team. You ever thought that before? Maybe you're not as carnal as I am, but I started to think that. It was one of those moments where God said to me, I'm going to accomplish this mission with or without you. He does not involve us in this mission because He needs us. He involves us in this mission because He loves us, and we have the privilege of experiencing being a part of this thing. And so I want to invite you, church at Brook Hills, do not let this mission pass you by. And I want to invite every single family that is represented in this room this morning, do not let this mission pass you by. It's guaranteed. There's the power of Christ. That sets the stage for what's next, the plan of Christ. Now, when you come to the plan of Christ here, and when you begin to, begin to think about this passage of Scripture, therefore, in light of that, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In this entire passage of Scripture, in the original language of the New Testament, there is only one imperative verb. And they, here's why this is important, just in case you're a little far removed from English class. An imperative verb is a command verb. When my wife gives me an imperative, that's a command. I do it. Okay? Right there. All right? I need to do it at least. All right? Right there. In this passage of Scripture, we see one imperative. It's the imperative, the command around which this entire passage revolves. Now, when you look at those verses, you've got to printed them there. You may have your Bibles. You've got it printed there on your piece of paper. What is the imperative verb? Our first thought is that it's go. But actually, in the original language of the New Testament, that is not the case. Go is actually a participle, much like baptizing and teaching them to obey everything commanded you. It is. It helps describe what the imperative is. There is one command in this passage, and it is make disciples of all nations. And that is the mission that we're talking about in the next six weeks, and that's the mission that Jesus is talking about in this passage. One mission, our mission, make disciples of all nations. Jesus says to these disciples, and the implication is to all of us in this room who have placed our faith in Christ, you have one mission in your life. And no, it is not to make money, And it's not to be successful, and it's not to have a comfortable family, and it's not to live nice, it's not to retire well, it's not to get a good education. Not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves, but we have one mission in our lives, each one of our lives in this room. If we have placed our faith in Christ, there is one mission that supersedes everything, and it's making disciples of all nations. It's the mission around which Jesus commands us to let our lives revolve. Now, I'm using that word very intentionally, a command. Because that's what's in this passage. And I want you to see that next blank there on your notes. This is not a call, but a command. Please hear me. Please do not miss this. What I'm talking about when it comes to making disciples of all nations is not a call that is reserved for a select few of us in this room. That's how we often look at missions. Well, this person is the one who's supposed to go over to other nations. Or this person's the one who's supposed to go out and be active in sharing their faith and making disciples. That's for them. And so we relegate this to a select few and say, well, they're called to do that. And what I want you to see this morning is that is just plain unbiblical. We have created this dangerous idea of calling and misconstrued what the Bible talks about when it talks about calling. I think when you look at Scripture, I think the Bible says pretty clearly that God gives us a call to salvation. He invites us to place our faith in him. So the call to salvation, when we respond to that call, there is a command at the center of each of our lives in this room, and it's to make disciples of all nations. Now, obviously, I'm not so ignorant as to think that this is going to look the same way in your life as it does mine. I'm going to do different things than you're going to do. You're going to do different things than I do. We have different gifts, different talents, different personalities. And so from this command, we all have different callings in our life. Some are called to different areas of service. Some are called to serve vocationally in the church. Some are called to move overseas. Some are called to do accounting, some are called to be teachers, some are called to stay at home. We've got different callings in our life, but they spring from this one command, make disciples of all nations. What I think we do, though, is we confuse these two. We take the call of God and we put it in the version of our command, and we think this make disciples of all nations thing is just something that only a few of us do. And it's not biblical. I want you to wrestle with this morning. In your life, you have one command, one mission, make disciples of all nations. Every single one of us in this room. No exception. If we placed our faith in Christ, then this command drives us. Now we have different gifts. Some of you love accounting. I don't know why you love accounting, but you love accounting. And so God has given you gifts and talents and passions in that area. But I want you to see that your whole command in life is not to be an accountant. Your command is to make disciples of all nations. And God has given you gifts to help that play out in that accounting world. Some of you have passions in teaching, law, doctors, whatever it may be, architects, construction, engineering, whatever your passions are, whatever your desires are, all of those God has given us to fulfill this command of making disciples of all nations. I don't know what you're thinking. Well, how do you do that? How do you make disciples of all nations? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what I want us to look at. I want you to see that these participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, help us understand what it means to make disciples of all nations. So, I'm guessing that if this command is at the center of all of our lives, it would probably do good for us to know what it means to make disciples of all nations. I'm guessing that if I polled different individuals in this room and asked you, what does it mean for you to make disciples of all nations? Some of us may know, some of us may not. Some of us would be kind of fuzzy. Well, I kind of, I don't know. What I want us to see is that if we're going to be good at anything in the church, we need to be good at making disciples of all nations. We need to know how to do this. Because it's what Jesus told us to do right before He ascended into heaven. So let's start with going. As you look at your notes, there going. I want you to think about evangelism there. I believe that's what Christ is talking about here, going evangelize. And by that I mean, go into in, in your workplace, in your community, and tell people about Christ. Introduce people to the love of Christ. I was down in New Orleans this week and, and, and serving in different places in the community around the church where I serve. And it was very humbling. There's just wreck and debris everywhere scattered trailers here and there with a few people that have come back in we had a group that went over to one particular home this guy working on his home just works all day and sleeps in there at night and works all day the next day when we go up this guy has a background that involves prison and some some difficulties in life begin to share the gospel with him and he places his faith in christ he said i want the hope that a storm like hurricane katrina can't destroy and so he places his faith in christ that's that's what going is about it's about you and I going out into communities, into the places where we have influence and sharing the gospel, leading people to Christ. But what I want you to see is that we don't stop there. We don't stop there. That's only one component of making disciples. This is where evangelism gets a bad stereotype. Evangelism gets the idea, well, you're just trying to get notches on your belt. You lead people to Christ and you kind of leave them, leave them hanging. Wow, come back and tell the church, we led this many people to faith in Christ. And you stop there. That's not biblical. It's not biblical evangelism. We don't leave people to Christ and leave them hanging there. My wife and I are adopting a child from, from Kazakhstan, a little infant from Kazakhstan, hopefully in the, in the next six or eight months. And when we go and get our baby and come back over here, we're not going to sit our baby outside and say, good luck, have a good time in America. That's not what we're going to do as parents. That's exactly what we do in the church, isn't it? Lead people to Christ and then expect them how to figure out how to follow Christ on their own. This is where it starts.
3: the one with two left feet standing on a lonely street i can't even walk a straight line and every time you look at me i'm spinning like an autumn leaf bound to hit bottom sometime where would i be without someone to save me someone who won't let me Evening, you're standing right in front of me with all- And bigger breaks than I'd ever care to confess Oh, but you're the one who looks at me And sees what I was meant to be More than just a beautiful mess Oh, and where would I be without someone to save Life within every single beat of my heart
0: This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount.
4: Hello this is Brian Winston and I'd like to welcome you to our program the Sermon on the Mount. Up to this point we have been studying together the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus in the book of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We have looked at chapter 5 and half of chapter 6. In the first half of chapter 6 Jesus teaches us about salvation, prayer, and fasting. Jesus teaches us to do all of these things in secret Jesus tells us not to take after the hypocrites and the Gentiles, but to do these things unto our Heavenly Father. In the second half of chapter 6, Jesus tells us to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and do not worry about tomorrow. Today, we will be studying Jesus' words, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor dust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In the beginning of the chapter, Jesus teaches us to be careful not to ask for salvation or to pray or to fast just to be noticed by other people. Then he tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. According to this world, to be noticed and praised by other people for good deeds is only natural. But by doing so, we are storing up treasures for ourselves in this world. But Jesus tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is because on earth, moth and rust will destroy the treasures and the thieves will break in and steal the treasures. What does it mean to store up treasures for yourself? It means to store your treasures out of greed and to depend on those treasures as you live your life. It also means to rely on those treasures to provide a safe and comfortable life. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells us a parable about a man that stores up treasures for himself. Before he tells us the parable, Jesus says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus tells us to be careful of greed and tells us this parable to teach us that our lives are not dependent on the amount of treasures we have stored up for ourselves. So this is what the parable is about. The land of the rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Then he says to his soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come, Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? The words to store is mentioned three times in this parable. The action of to store is related to greed. The man's attention is on storing up his treasures and things for himself. He believes that because of all the treasures he has stored, his soul will be able to rest, eat, drink, and be merry. When God comes to take his soul, there will be no use for all of those materialistic things that he has stored up for himself. Many people believe that they are more secure with more treasures and money that they save up for themselves. But it will only rust and be stolen by the thieves. That is why Jesus teaches us to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is because in heaven, there are no moss or rust to destroy the treasure, nor thieves to steal your treasure. Just like when we studied the Lord's Prayer, heaven is a place where God's plan and rules are fulfilled. To store up your treasures in heaven is to live your life according to God in heaven. It is to follow God's rules and to live your life according to them. And when we live our lives only for God and live according to his rules, it will never rust or be destroyed. In verse 21, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where do you think your heart is? If you are storing up your treasures in this world, then your heart is in the materialistic things of this world. If you are storing up your treasures in heaven, then your heart belongs to God. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If your eyes are focused only on God and your heart is only towards God, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your heart is full of all of the things of this world then your whole body will be full of darkness. Some people try to look at both the things of the world and God with their eyes. They try to keep both things of the world and God in their hearts. But Jesus tells us that is not possible. In verse 24, Jesus teaches us that no one can serve two masters and that you cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth has a strong ability to grab a person's heart. Many people feel that the more wealth they accumulate leads to a life of being more stable and content. When you try to accumulate wealth through greed, wealth actually takes control over your life, making you live your life for the world. Wealth becomes the most important thing in your life. When wealth becomes number one in your life, God has no place in your life. When your heart is towards the wealth, then your heart will not be fully towards God. There is a book called "God or Money." When asked that question, we will definitely answer God, but we should reflect on our lives to really see if we are living a life that Jesus is teaching us about. Just like it says in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, "I pray that we would not fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God? Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Today, we studied Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 on Jesus' teachings about how we should store our treasures in heaven. Next time, we will be studying Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. I thank you for listening and I hope to see you next time. God bless.
0: about the baby penguin chasing after its mother i am reminded of our lives there's a part of us that wants to live our life in the world having all we need abundantly and living a comfortable life through faith in jesus christ however just like the gentoo baby penguins in the documentary and many people in the bible when we feel full have all we need in abundance and are comfortable we grow farther away from God, just like the baby penguin did that quit chasing the mother halfway. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. We must look back at our own lives and check to see if we are able to confess these words as followers of Jesus. If the worldly things and riches of this world are hindering us from chasing after Jesus fully, then should we not stay away from those things? We have to look into our hearts to see that we have the faith to deny an abundant and comfortable life to continue following Jesus unerringly. Jesus stated clearly, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I hope that we can be like the baby penguin that chases after its mother to the end, chasing after Jesus with our desires and passion. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless.
1: As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee.
3: You